This is the Lightning Junkies podcast with your host, Chaz. On this week's episode of the podcast, we have JD and Dean talking about NFTs and microtransactions. So I wanted to get these guys on the show because I really like the idea of SparkShot and I really like the idea of MoneySocket, both separate in their ideas and what they're trying to accomplish. But, you know, both of these guys, you know, worked on both. And we really kind of dig in and talk about those things. We also talk about VR a little bit, which is a bit surprising uh, since both JD and Dean worked at a VR company before getting into Bitcoin Lightning. But before we jump into the actual podcast, I have a couple notes here for you. I'm going to be focusing more on my other podcast, What is Real?, Starting this month, we're going to be taking a month-long vacation for Lightning Junkies. We'll we'll be back in December sometime with our next episode. But in the month of November, both me and Kat are going to take a vacation to a location that has no cell signal and no Wi-Fi. So we're going to be a bit less responsive than normal. And we're just going to be completely off-grid and not be communicating with anyone and getting some much-needed R&R and escape from the terrible, terrible city living. I don't think it's terrible, but I definitely understand why a lot of the Bitcoiners out there feel that way right now. I really want to focus on the What Is Real podcast, just because I see it as a way to balance out all of my different interests about different subject matters, psychedelics, uh, mental health, and things like that. You know, Bitcoin and Bitcoin Lightning is great, but I need variety. I need different kinds of people to talk to. I need to be able to kind of build this business so it's not locked into the niche of Bitcoin and Lightning. And obviously, I want to still learn about Lightning Network. I still want to learn about Bitcoin. And so that's why this podcast is still going to be around. We're not going to shut it down. And most likely over time, we're going to expand on it and make it better. I feel like this year we haven't done as great of a job at that. And to be entirely honest, I think it had to do mostly with my unstable mental health that I'm still in the progress of figuring out. And I think I'm much more on my way than I've been getting myself credit for these last months. But I think I just need to do a better job at focusing on the topics that are going to give me the best short-term gain. And I think that's focusing on mental health, psychedelics, and other things that might be able to uh, conquer this depression. Focusing on self-love, self-care, all these different things. I would love some feedback on this. What would you guys like to see from a Bitcoin Lightning podcast? Do you want more newbie-focused content? Do you want even more technical content? You know, uh, can you guys just, you know, send me a message on Twitter, uh, twitter.com forward slash LN junkies. We hope to get the second episode of the What Is Real podcast released sometime in November and possibly the third sometime in December. I absolutely want to record an episode about internal family systems, and I believe Juan Galt from Twitter um, is going to be the gentleman that uh, I'm going to talk to about that, and we're going to kind of explain that to my audience, which I feel like has been a great help to me 
in the last few months in being able to contextualize the internal field of play, as it were. Without further ado, let's listen to this week's episode. and welcome JD and Dean to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you guys doing today? Pretty good. Yeah, doing excellent. Fantastic. So a while back, uh, Fiat Jaff actually messaged me out of the blue and says, you have to interview these guys. They're doing amazing stuff. I immediately went and looked at your guys' Twitter and I didn't understand what the fuck is going on, to be entirely frank there. And so, you know, that's why I have you guys on, you know, to kind of explain it uh, to me in terms that I can understand and the audience can understand and hopefully kind of clear up the, the misunderstandings here. Before we get into, you know, the fun stuff here, you know, the, the money socket and uh, spark shot, I wanted to get some background on you guys here and kind of understand who you are as people before we launch into the other stuff here. I'm going to ask JD here, do you want to kind of give us your, your non-Bitcoin background and start from there, please? Yeah, sure. So I've been uh, a, a software developer, software engineer by trade and training for uh, a good chunk of time before arriving in Bitcoin. So I had a career working in distributed storage systems, worked for a small company that got acquired and then got acquired again. And so during that time, the product got built and became less interesting. So um, in my spare time, I kind of picked up other interests. And one of those was was Bitcoin. Fortunately, I got laid off at a good time where I could then just parlay into uh, <laughs> some Bitcoin stuff with with a little bit of a severance package. And um, yeah, I've been I haven't looked back since. So we uh, I met Dean and we uh, founded a company. We did some gaming stuff, uh, always like sort of looking at Bitcoin and blockchain and, uh, you know, the Lightning Network came along subsequently. So we got deep into that. Um, I describe myself, I guess, as a as a back end guy. I do sort of like embedded systems type programming. It's not really necessarily like a front end GUI stuff. That's where my collaboration with Dean um, in his background, there's a lot of some synergy we found and uh, what we've been able to produce is, is SparkShot among, among other things. The other part there is obviously filling that gap of how we join together. My background is still software, but more on the front end and the experiential side of things. I got started out in doing web stuff like a long, long time ago, back in the late 90s. But I had this kind of side passion for doing video games. I kind of dipped out of the web just before it all kind of took off, before we got that big dot-com boom, <laughs> which is kind of foolish to me, but, you know, whatever. So I jumped out of there and actually found my, my way into video games. So I spent good like chunk of decades there. So I, I started in video games in 2000, raced through, worked on many different types of games, different genres for different companies. I had a lot of fun, but uh, also a lot of frustrations. You know, we, we're doing something that was creatively driven. You're not always trying to, trying to do something that's deeply creative and the business side is trying to pull it in a different direction. So it came to about 2016. I kind of felt myself a bit burnt out. There was a lot of new fun technologies coming along. And I wasn't really seeing video games taking, you know, giant leaps forward and playing around with this new tech. I just decided at one point that I wasn't having fun anymore. I need to be having fun in what I do. So I left to try and explore some new stuff. Part of that was fueled by Bitcoin and some of these other technologies that we're seeing on the fringe. So that's where, yeah, I met JD at a local Bitcoin meetup. We got talking and a few days later, we're sat there writing code and, and that's where we've come from from there. 
Really quickly, uh, Dean, I just wanted to ask, I, I saw that in your background, you had worked on some VR stuff. Do you want to briefly talk about that? Because I happen to be a fan of VR as well. Yeah. So that was, again, the technology side of things. As I was kind of wrapping up my time working on video games, I started seeing on the fringe of this tech boom, this like potential for VR. I got one of those early Oculus kits and then ordered the Vive when that was coming through. And started looking at that stuff and was like, well, this is interesting, but I'm kind of, I'm always skeptical when it comes to tech. Uh, I want to, I want to get my hands on and figure it out because I'm not really a believer in the hype. It might be the attraction point, but it's really to pose more questions. So upon leaving in 2016, one of the first things I did, I jumped in, opened up Unity and started building some VR stuff to try and figure out what it was about, how cool it could be, where the problems were, what kind of, what kind of like UX solutions were needed for VR because it just felt so different. And that's where we actually first met, JD and myself first met. We, we met at a Bitcoin meetup. By the time we were working on actual VR stuff, so that was our first couple of products that we worked on together, was we did a VR game uh, which shipped on um, Steam. Uh, that was a, a running game. That was like kind of an arcade Mario Kart style racing game. And then after that, we actually worked on a VR product that was actually using the ideas of blockchain and stuff, bringing into it. But we ended up shelving that one because... Some of the problems of VR and VR adoption and blockchain adoption, all these, it just felt like it was too much to ask a, a general user base to come on board. So, I mean, that's, I guess, where we can talk more about SparkShot and why that was the solution to uh, some of those problems. Absolutely. Um, I just want to talk about this topic for Wimmy. One more question here, just because I do like VR so much. Question to both of you. What do you guys think about the current state of VR, you know, like Facebook taking the Oculus Quest and making it Facebook only and that kind of divergence? And, you know, what I'm seeing is a fair amount of the people opposing that or like, how can we take the Quest that's like the subsidized headset and, you know, jailbreak it and just do a bunch of side loading stuff and just make it our hardware and do whatever we want with it? What is your kind of general opinion there? The whole VR thing is is an interesting piece of tech. It was hyped very early on, like back in 2016 when I was diving into it. I was looking at a lot of the, the charts and data, you know, these marketing people that are making predictions about where the world is going. And they're saying like by 2021, 2020, it's going to be overtaken. Like everything is going to be in VR at that point. And we're going to see a lot of legacy systems fall behind. And that was part of where my skepticism came in. And so developing on VR was a very interesting thing. It's deeply immersive while you're in it, but it also has those problems and technological problems as well. Cables and uh, the fidelity of the screen, the discomfort of this big like plastic thing stuck to your face. A lot of these things that we, you know, we hopefully solve as we move forward in time. And then it came to the issues of the hardware side of things. Like obviously Facebook bought Oculus. Palmer Lucky got the hell out of there with his cash and he's become like kind of a, a spokesperson for the anti-Oculus now almost. I saw some of his comments about the, the news of Facebook making this sort of another data collection service and it all starts feeling very wrong and icky and, and not so fun. And that's kind of a part of the problem with the tech because it's very expensive tech to develop. So when you've got the money of Facebook behind it, they can develop probably the best tech, but they're also leveraging that as more data collection. And it's very invasive data collection. You know, this is like maybe you use VR to basically shape the inside of your house and your movement. You've got voice and sound in VR, so you're capturing all that audio. And as I've been caught in the past doing it so openly, and it's kind of one of those things now where, you, you know, you don't want to jump on the sort of conspiracy bandwagon too much, but... 
there is enough data out there to know that that Facebook do collect everything they possibly can. And VR is that very immersive and therefore invasive. Yeah, the, the sideloading stuff, the jailbreaking stuff is kind of cool for techie people, but that's not going to hit an average consumer. So that's going to be a problem for VR's adoption if the tech people aren't getting behind it for those reasons. Yeah, if I can add that when we started working with VR, um, it was sort of lumped in with this like collection of buzzwords that included like AI and, you know, blockchain was one of them, like drone technology, AR, VR. It would seem like an easy way to to raise money if you have some sort of like big hype idea and you're going to like mash together a few of these buzzwords. We fell a little bit for that trap, I'd say, but I guess our route out of that um, and towards uh, something like Lightning is when when it came down to it, a lot of these technologies that were aimed at raising money, you know, not really like finding a product market fit. VR is a very compelling demo. I have nephews. They, they think I'm super cool having developed a VR game and all that. And they have a VR headset available but like they don't spend any time in it. It's it's like kind of a cool technology, but like they spend their gaming hours and their their money on far simpler technologies like, you know, Fortnite or whatever the hot Xbox PlayStation game is. We kind of got a little bit sick of the hype in that space. Uh, so we ultimately, it was hard to make money without kind of selling out into some sort of buzzword collection being handed off to VC investors. That's my frustration in it. So right now I don't even own a, a VR headset. Um, I had some for a time where we were developing, but I've kind of gotten back to working on Bitcoin, kind of low level Unix, Linux uh, command line stuff as opposed to the big fancy flashy graphics, fancy video card style of, of development. VR definitely does have a space in the world, but I think it's something that's got to find its own space. It's not a replacement for other things. Like there's definitely some amazing games in VR and definitely amazing experiences. Actually, one of the companies that we're, we're somewhat familiar with locally here to us, they develop training software for VR for doing like somewhat dangerous training, like, you know, mechanical uh, forklift training and stuff like that. And these are great, you know, and, and there's some of the games that kind of reflect on like the new Star Wars squadron has just come out where you sat in the cockpit of an X-Wing or a, a TIE fighter. Those are really ideal types of VR because they don't fall in line with some of the issues that come along with it, like the room space kind of movement and punching walls and standing on your dog and, you know, all these kind of like problems that you get with that, that the problems with VRs, the immersion is there, but the real world is still there as a physical space. So it's still problematic. I think JD brought up a very interesting point, especially if maybe we were to bring in the idea of Bitcoin and Lightning. If I were an outside observer, I think it would be pretty fair to maybe characterize Bitcoin and Lightning in a similar way that there's a lot of hype around it. If you throw this and that together, the Bitcoin VR thing, it's going to take off and we're going to raise a lot of money with that. How would you guys contrast VR being this kind of hype machine, like JD was kind of saying? And Bitcoin Lightning, you know, maybe being in the same ballpark. I would say like one thing about Lightning companies and how they've been funded, it's been very responsible. It's like it's almost like the anti-ICO is kind of how like it's it's getting back to like a more KPI driven VC model where um, we're going to bootstrap, uh, provide seed funding to various companies and we're going to see where they go for user adoption. Um, and maybe the, the, the numbers at this point in time aren't super encouraging, but at the very least, you could see that the companies are run responsibly, something like Lightning Labs, for example. They didn't raise too much money. They didn't have an ICO for $50 million or whatever other numbers were aggressively huge back in the day. 
we see kind of like a responsible progression through the actual hurdles, like kind of accepting the fact that this is a technology that's probably going to take five years, 10 years. And I think companies are adjusting to that groove in a healthy way that's getting back to, you know, kind of the more proven success models of VC on how to like do a startup and, and scale it. I think there's a couple of interesting points there. I mean, like in laden in all this technology is friction. And it's easy when you've got like, going back to what JD was saying about this buzzword laden kind of sell, you can get in the emotional moment, especially with a charismatic salesperson and really sell that kind of moonshot vision. Something just kind of like, we're going to throw out there, we're going to take over the world, blah, 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 blah. And you're skipping over the the enormous amount of friction that comes along with this. VR has got it. I mean, VR has got it, but it's also got it in hardware. And that was one of the problems that we saw is like, I can't solve a hardware issue. And, you know, I don't want to default to Facebook solving a hardware issue because, you know, I don't want to be reliant on other people. When it comes to stuff like Lightning, it's equally, you know, high level of friction, but it's things that we perhaps might be able to solve. Uh, These aren't often quick problems to solve. Each element of friction that becomes part of this loop pushes back and that's like the sort of the struggle for adoption. I think that's one of the things that we we kind of identified. And then when we balanced things out and said, let's go whole hog and lightning, it was pushed by this, let's take a fringe technology that's not quite there yet. But it's in within a space where we can perhaps working with the the rest of the community, figure out these lot these frictional problems and solve them, you know, each and every step along the way to smooth that uh, process out. That makes a lot of sense, I think. Going along with that same thought, how did you guys end up coming to SparkShot? That was a lot of long, late night conversations <laughs> to, to take us through this. SparkShot is kind of the result of really a lot of different things. We did develop some VR Bitcoin stuff beforehand that we abandoned. We did this whole uh, part of the Rare Pepe crowd, the trading cards and uh we had this idea of looking at these kind of trading cards that people were playing around with using the counterparty assets. Uh, and you were looking at these, these assets on the phone, which are kind of neat. And it was like the magic gather, the gathering star collection thing. And then we were talking one night and said, like, wouldn't it be cool if we looked at these, you know, really nice pieces of artwork in VR? You could then see these, you know, these cards like six feet in size. So I jumped in and I knocked together this, uh, this prototype. And the next morning, uh, we were working out my basement at the time. JD came around the next morning and I handed over the VR headset and I said, check it out. I set up this like 3D art gallery with all these rare Pepe cards up. And it just felt awesome to be able to go up so close and look at these cards and see them. So we kind of got this, this idea of like something's going on here. But then as we started to continue the evolution of the conversations, all this kind of friction came in, the friction of VR. We're using counterparty assets and the whole problems with that came with the whole, you know, counterparty tokens and all that other stuff. And so when we started to dial this all back, we, we started looking at Bitcoin as the sort of philosophical side of things, like the reasons behind the Bitcoin, what was going on there. We looked behind what was going on with the code and then the sort of the emphasis to like draw people in. It couldn't be there just because it was Bitcoin. That's not an attractive thing. It's like, I want to make this shop and what's the shop going to deal with? It's going to deal with money and people are going to come in and spend money. It's like, that's not the attraction point. So we really gravitated around this artwork side of things. And we really wanted to do something with art because it was fundamentally human. So artwork can speak to humans on a human level. And then we could use Bitcoin to facilitate a function within that. Well, it's more about people conducting conversations, work, you know, based around looking at art, enjoying art, talking about artwork, which is very different from what Bitcoin represents. 
I think also uh, one thing when we're building this museum, you know, once once we actually had it in VR and you could, you know, traverse um, this art space, it, it kind of left you wanting more. People are used to a certain level of interactivity in video games. So we had kind of like, while it was cool, it was kind of like a stale space. And like, we kind of felt like we needed to um, have some interaction. And then even with that, we like, okay, well, let's put up a Bitcoin address. If you pay the Bitcoin address, something will happen in the world. Even that with like the on-chain confirmation times and fees and all these other things, it, it felt like a broken thing. So like when, when Lightning came along and we, we kind of knew that Lightning was, was brewing at the time that the idea of an instant payment was like kind of the missing piece. And then also trying to figure out how, how the UI can work in a virtual world like that, um, you know, to be able to do an instant payment and have something respond instantly. Just among the, all those problems, Lightning seemed like a, a solution. When we first met, going back to the kind of opening date when we first met the Bitcoin meetup here, it was a conversation about Lightning. JD was the one that told me about Lightning and kind of gave me the background. And you had your explanation of how Lightning worked on that sort of fundamental level to get over the 10 minute confirmation times and stuff. It was, yeah, it was definitely felt like the solution to, to a problem that we were seeing there with that sense of immediacy. It was like a huge amount of friction. You can't ask the average person to wait around for 10 minutes. You know, or a, a minimum of 10 minutes is kind of an unknown amount of time before a confirmation comes through. So we knew it was a potential solution to a problem. And we should add that all of this, uh, the art gallery museum space that we were building was prior to, to Lightning going live. It was kind of like we didn't know how long Lightning was really going to take before we could jump in and embrace it. So maybe we were actually just treading water for a time and trying to figure some things out before we knew we'd be jumping over to Lightning because that just seemed like the natural place to want to, to, want to reach to. Before we kind of keep going on Sparkshot here, I wanted to ask about Counterparty a little bit and kind of in reference to NFTs. I'm not sure if a lot of people are aware, but NFTs kind of started on Counterparty, started on Bitcoin like a while ago. I think even before the uh, rare Pepe's, there were other things before that that were uh, NFTs, like the kind of proto NFTs or whatever. I remember using Counterparty in like 2015 or something, 2016, and it was terrible, horrible. I hated it completely. It just took way too long for even anything to show up in your counterparty wallet, all that kind of stuff. Do you have any kind of opinion on NFTs as a means for like an artist to profit from their trade, art form, et cetera, and maybe the kind of a reason why SparkShot was, you know, came into existence and all that? NFTs, it's a compelling idea as you're working through kind of like what a blockchain is. And all that. And, and maybe at the margins, I can argue for NFTs in that, like if you have a set of assets and then like an ecosystem of, of apps that respect those assets, the fact that it's on this like decentralized blockchain type thing might be of value. However, we went through the exercise of actually trying to develop an app. In theory, this works, but in practice, there's all kinds of fragmentation, like rare Pepe's turned into, you know, Ethereum tokens. And then on Ethereum, there's 18 different platforms that are incompatible where you, you know, issue these assets. And there's also like uh, fraud where people will take the art of a certain artist and like reissue them as tokens and make money that way. Also in practice, like they use these quote unquote DEXs, decentralized exchanges. And there's like a bunch of wash trading in that ecosystem that if an artist wants to promote their art, they can buy their own art and pretend it's an anonymous buyer. 
and that makes the stats spike up on their art. There's a lot of like understated problems in what's actually going on there. And just the biggest thing is like trying to build an app that like respected these tokens. A, there was no money to be had. The money is in like actually issuing the assets, not building software for the assets. And B, like there wasn't a sense that these assets were going to stick around for a long time. There was like there was sort of fashion that lasted a couple months and then you know there'd be a new artist or a new thing that came along and then all the eyeballs would gravitate towards that. It's kind of this ethos that's part of Ethereum of like always like making a new token, making a new platform. It just leads to infinite fragmentation, which is very, very hard as a developer to try and go chase all these platforms to try and bring it all together. Bitcoin, the ethos is the opposite. You focus on Bitcoin, you focus on making Bitcoin and making an ecosystem around stuff like Lightning and, and other type things. There's all the developers that are pointed into it rather than a bunch of developers pointed outwards and trying to invent some new token. Also, just the, the, the correspondence of the art to a token, it's kind of only by like social agreement that that even exists. That, you know, Rare Pepe has no like cryptographic reference to the actual artwork. It's sort of like by community cons consensus that, you know, in, in sort of like the meme space, that token represents the art. So there's, there's a certain amount of like what I've called like crypto fairy dust. Like there's not actually anything there. They've just kind of like attached a bunch of cryptography around it to sprinkle it, to make the art look more appealing to, to get people to buy it. Whereas if you like deconstruct what's actually going on at a computational level, there's no revolution. This is just like people agreeing that uh, somebody owns a piece of art, whereas you could just copy paste the JPEG and there's no like DRM to it. I'm not sure whether artists are successfully sustaining themselves on it. Like I'm skeptical that um, the market is, is fully honest. And, and yeah, I don't have any data to prove it one way or the other. This is just my suspicion. I guess it's captured the imagination of artists. And if it does make money, I guess we'll see a lot more of it. But as far as me trying, being interested in trying to develop apps in that space, I'm, I'm not sure it's fertile ground. <laughs> Do you guys have any opinion on RGB at all? A little bit. Um, maybe that's worth connecting in, in sort of if we're talking about money socket later on. As time goes on, I'm more and more skeptical uh, of tokens as a category, whether they're like RGB or liquid or Ethereum or whatever else. So I, I think I, I understand like the sort of Peter Todd's proof marshal concept that's being built into RGB. And I guess that's interesting academically. However, the whole notion of like a pegged asset where there's somebody backing it, whether that's like a tether, like a stable coin, or it's like an asset of some other thing, like a game item that depends on the game existing and being supported by a company. I think tokens are just like this horrible Rube Goldberg machine that's like frankly unnecessary. If you have a centralized party that's backing the asset, that's a perfect candidate to just host a database, like get MySQL in, in there and call it a day. I think there's a lot of this like crypto fairy dust fallacy that because this is like using a bunch of buzzwords and it's a blockchain that somehow Tether is worth more than your checking account that has a, a dollar value in it. I'm generally skeptical of, of RGB. It sounds very complicated. I think there's other ways of facilitating like stable transactions, which we can maybe talk about with MoneySocket, but um, and, and not that's the, the be all end all, but there's 
There's other approaches. I think tokens carry over a lot of the bad usability that we have to fight with in Bitcoin. I'm not necessarily sure it's going to be a good end user facing abstraction to make people think about their tokens in addition to their Bitcoin and addition to their, their checking account. So uh, yeah, color me a little bit skeptical. Another thing worth pointing out, Tether is highly profitable in, in kind of nefarious ways for, for Bitfinex in that they can always issue new tokens without actually having it backed in, in their bank account or in their like asset balance. At any point, if they hold an inflation key, and this goes for any, any sort of asset, stablecoin or whatever, they, they can inflate those tokens and immediately buy Bitcoin. So they're, they're effectively stealing through inflation. I'm a little bit skeptical and I get a little bit disheartened that so-called like Bitcoin maximalists um, kind of don't spot this as a problem. And they think, you know, stable coins are an innovation, whereas like it's the same stealing by inflation concept that people are just getting away with unquestioned. I'm a little bit apprehensive of yet another token platform, though I think, you know, perhaps in the NFT space, maybe something in the long run, something like RGB could support if it is a thing that people are still interested in in the long run. I really appreciate that response. And I'm I'm going to mull that over when I have Giacomo on to talk about RGB and bust his balls over it. I kind of wanted to jump back into a spark shot here. Do you guys want to kind of give me a brief um, idea of, you know, what you guys do on there and what the uh, the value prop is? As we kind of described with our, with our sort of experience background, uh, JD's got the back end and uh, developing the, all the stuff that you people generally don't see but experience. And I took charge at the front end. The, the style, the visuals, and the, the sort of flow of how everything works in the client, essentially. And that's that's been a good pair in between our two sort of skill sets. I brought a, a sort of wealth of experience developing front-end stuff and experience stuff. And, and JD's got all that sort of deep back-end uh, command line and style uh, content there. Going through that, it gives us the ability to create applications that have this sort of back-end to support the front-end. And that's one of the things we've seen a lot of especially in this space where we see a lot of weekend and small projects come along, you can take a framework and get something that looks quite cool up and running quite quickly, but it, it suffers from you know, lack of scalability or, or you know, not a deep thought process of saying, not to say it's not a real app, because of course, you know, you, if an app is functional, it's real, but can it really stand the test of time over uh, and as it thought through some of these kind of grander problems that we might be facing, should we find success in the Lightning space? And that's not to say it's Parkshot you know, is that that product, but to find and make a product in the lightning space be normalized and hit that big crowd, we have to start hitting those problems of scalability and all this other stuff that lightning promises that we can achieve. The one thing that I, I kind of liked about the Sparkshot pitch in kind of reference or in contrast to NFTs is that it's kind of saying we're not trying to bullshit you with this, as JD put it, fairy dust. It is what it is. You know, you're paying the artist to look at his art. Done. You know, there's no other bullshit in, in play there. Would you call that a kind of fair way to describe it there? Yeah, when we did talk to like a number of artists, we went to some of these, um, well, at least one rare art festival events, and we talked to a bunch of artists and we kind of got a, a sense of the space. I guess what we kind of took away from it is like they don't necessarily care about all the crypto fairy dust. They care about making money and promoting their art. So we kind of like to throw away the NFTs entirely and start from scratch saying that artists want to like promote and market their art and they want to get paid for doing so. That's kind of the core design start of, of SparkShot. 
just to give kind of a, a brief description, because you said it right at the very beginning, like you look at Sparkshot and it's like, what is this thing? And, and that's not exactly by design. Uh, you know, we didn't want to be sort of obtuse in, in, in what we've developed here, but because Lightning is so new and because we are stepping into a new territory where anybody coming about now and they're installing a Lightning wallet and they've put some Bitcoin on it and they want to go and use it, it gives us a chance to play about with new ideas. As I said, like, you know, my background in video games was feeling very stale because those, those companies are getting super risk averse. So they were only willing to really allow you to develop stuff that's already in the proven market space. And, you know, you're going out there and you're developing a lightning application and, you know, why bother trying to be safe as long as we were staying within, you know, not going down the deep buzz, buzzword territory of trying to incorporate all this new technology. Like we, we tried to stick around the smallest piece of core tech that we could, you know, stick as close to core lightning as we possibly could and um, leverage all that. But then take that chance to play around and do something quite different. This notion of getting an artist to upload a complete image to our server, we blank that image out and publish it live so nobody can see what that image looks like. And then users can grab one or more pixels and then reveal those pixels for a Bitcoin payment and attach to that reveal a message should they want to. It was a play on on Satoshi's place. Obviously, that came uh, first and really ignited the, the field. And uh, Satoshi's place, you could, you could, I guess, kind of look back to if people remember the million dollar homepage from back in the early 2000s, whenever that was. This notion of a web page broadcasts something globally to everyone. So anybody looking at a web page, wherever they are, whatever web browser they're looking in, they're going to see the same thing, typically. And we wanted to unify that model. Like if somebody reveals a pixel on a, on a piece of artwork, then everybody in the world sees it. So that's a statement being made not just by the artist, but by the person revealing it as well. And so it, we just kind of formed around that. It wasn't, it wasn't so much that we had this kind of like capture point of saying, oh, we really like this product, so we're going to make this product with Lightning. It was to, to try and capture things that the web did well, like the internet did well, like the protocols that we have in existence do well. The idea of replication is, is a thing that computers do really well. So this idea of saying, you, I own something and you don't own this thing, which is kind of like a, an NFT problem. It's like, I own the token, but everybody can see the JPEG. It was kind of like, well, let's everybody see the JPEG and nobody cares about who owns the thing. It's not about owning something. It's about participating in something and using Lightning for that. Would you guys say that Lightning kind of adds that? I'm not sure I would call it a gamification kind of thing, you know, just making it fun because you're throwing little bits of money around, you know, for both parties there. I haven't dipped into the NFT art space. I did with the Rare Pepes. I was happy to throw a bit of a pocket change around to get some cards and have them fill up my account to buy wallet. And we wanted to kind of embrace something like that because if people are coming into this space, especially like who knows if Sparkshot is going to stay around and if it doesn't, then what have you lost? So if we can deliver things and we've developed Sparkshot so it does function in the millisatoshi space, you know, as Lightning does. So we've got transactions that can happen at the very, the very smallest level that we can get away with. And we want to be able to do that. So we're making people, or hopefully it's more comfortable transaction. It's a full transaction. It could be one Bitcoin, but it's not. It's, it's a handful of millisatoshis. So you're not really losing something if anything goes wrong. You know, it hasn't so far, and that's great. And it feels like more comfortable and, and you know, less of a, a level of friction. Like, do I want to invest in this piece of artwork? It's like, we're talking about a less than a penny's worth of money here. So it's just a gesture more than, you know, am I giving this one ETH to this artist for this piece of artwork? And what does that mean? 
So I definitely think that, yeah, the low level of friction to be able to use Lightning, that immediate transactional process, along with the low level of cost to each individual transaction and accumulatively as well, like that can still total up to something eventually to the artist. If it's, a, if it's one of the biggest pieces of artwork you can launch in Sparkshot, which would be a million pixels, that could... If, if Sparkshot was successful, turn into something valuable to the artist. But on an individual level, it wouldn't be much to use, you know, to, to reveal a couple of pixels. Yeah, I, I definitely say that the, the totality of Sparkshot is, is an exploration and novelty at this stage. We wanted to play with um, the unique aspects of it. So one thing you might notice about Sparkshot is there's no user logins, even for the artists. It's done entirely um, through the Lightning Network or through a signed message if you're uploading art. That's kind of like a totally different style of web app from what we're used to, where um, like you'd have to have a, like your email address and a login and and that kind of a database entry to go with it. We we kind of rejected all that from the get go just to like see what the app would look like at the end of that. Also, the fact that you can post a message anonymously and in a way that's also spam resistant in the fact that you have to pay for each message. That's an interesting concept that I think is underexplored. How do we uh, protect against spam? That, that was sort of the initial idea of proof of work and hash cash is um, how do you prevent all this email spam from showing up in your inbox? Something like Sparkshot and other things where there's uh, a paid message. That's something that I think we need to start exploring a lot more. That's a very powerful concept that's not really talked about. Some of the early conversations came in like, people said, well, what's to stop people just buying chunks of pixels? It's like, well, that's kind of the point, you know, <laughs> you, you do that, you're paying the artist and that's all good. And then, then people saying, well, if it's like the million dollar homepage or something, couldn't somebody go and grab some pixels and draw their logo or something in it? And it's like, well, sure. And you're paying for that privilege to, to do that. You're paying the artist to do that. And we've certainly seen that on Sparkshop. If you look at most of the artwork that's up there, you'll see the advertisement for BLW uh, uh, put across there, which, you know, that's the artist getting paid for what they're doing. So, you know, it's all good. Obviously, Lightning is being used for the microtransactions in this particular use case here. I've had a lot of guests on the podcast in the past that have questioned the long-term feasibility of microtransactions on Lightning. I think this is where Money Socket comes into play. Before we get there exactly, would you kind of agree with some of those guests that question the future feasibility of microtransactions on Lightning? I think there's valid science in the game theory that says, you know, maybe there's some problems with microtransactions. But I think that's at the margins. Like if we need another layer on top of Lightning to, to do that or something, like I think that will come. Assuming that there is use cases like Sparkshot and hopefully, you know, thousands of other use cases that people invent. If there's demand for it, I believe in the tech, like it, we'll figure it out. In the meantime, yeah, there might be some channel closure game theory type concerns around microtransactions. Yeah, it, it's valid. But having looked at those, like they haven't scared me enough to like abandon the concept entirely. I think uh, we need to push on and I think those will get solved. I think going into this, you've got to be skeptic. You've got to be skeptical about everything. And that's what I was saying earlier about VR. You know, it was easy to, to sign up, kind of fall into the hype train and that was, might be an attraction point, but don't just start believing the hype. One of the great things about working in code is that you can go there, you can test the code out and you can test your assumptions. Uh, you know, so with, with something like Lightning, you should go into it with, with some sort of skepticism. You shouldn't be just like this kind of fraught believer. You know, I don't classify myself as a Bitcoin maximalist. I'm skeptical of Bitcoin the same way I'm skeptical of anything. But I want to, for this to, to work. I want it to be true. 
And it's going to take the development of, of software engineers and people forming these applications around to create that. You know, if we look at what's been successful in the past, I mean, take something like email, as we kind of mentioned, it's massively successful, but it's also fraught with lots of problems. That hasn't stopped us embracing it, and it's not the perfect solution. But we, we did embrace it. It did take off. And we, could, we can look back at that and say we could have developed a much better protocol system to, to develop email that wouldn't have had the spam problem. But we embraced what we did. So you know, our future as a speech isn't always going to pick the perfect solution, but we are going to pick something generally if we need it. Lightning could fail, um, but I, I would like to be part of that process to, to see and make sure that it failed, but it failed because we tried everything out and that just didn't work rather than just sit the sidelines and, and you know, wait and see what happens. I really like that kind of logic there. And even though I'm not doing any development myself, that's a philosophy that I would definitely sign up for. Let's kind of try to bring this all together here. It's my understanding that even though you're not necessarily worried about the need for addressing the kind of microtransaction issue at the moment, Money Socket kind of addresses that and kind of adds what I think one of the reasons why I really got into Lightning initially was Andreas Antonopoulos kind of laying out this vision of streaming money. Do you kind of want to lay out what Money Socket is and if I'm kind of correct there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I remember seeing those Andreas talks early on and being highly inspired by that vision as well. Um, so I guess in part that's led me here as well. Money Socket comes out of what we kind of learned from from SparkShot. So uh, we have a nice, fully fledged, fully realized uh, user interface on SparkShot that lets you select pixels and and pay for them. However, in practice, um, what we found was like the highest point of user friction is still paying the invoice. We have logs to back that up that it takes, you know, typically like 20 seconds, 25 seconds from the time we generate and present the invoice until it actually gets paid. So you can imagine that, you know, during those 20 seconds or so, you know, they have to like pull their phone out of their pocket. They have to unlock their phone. They have to find their wallet app. They have to enter their pin code. Maybe it has to sync for channels. They got to find a QR code scan button. They have to scan the QR code. Then they have to you know, click OK, and then they wait a couple seconds, and then they get their pixels. That's actually a terrible user experience for something where you're spending less than a penny at a time on something like, like SparkShot. As app developers, coming, you know, Dean's coming from a, a video game background, you always want to make an immersive app. You don't want somebody to have to go futz around with some other thing for 20 seconds, 30 seconds. What we found is just the, the overall ecosystem of wallets really weren't built for the use case that we had built. The idea from, from, from Money Socket kind of came out of that. It's, it's sort of a fresh take on how wallets could be constructed to facilitate um, microtransactions, but also like machine to machine um, payments in the Andreas Antonopoulos visions uh, in his talk. I think we're getting down in that direction. So, what Money Socket is, it's an open source protocol that we've started. Right now, I'm the, the only developer on it. It's still very much under construction. I'm trying to, to bootstrap it and get some demos out there. The name implies socket. It's sort of it's uh, a play on like web sockets. Um, so like websites, you know, interactive websites uh, typically have web sockets in the background to communicate with the server to kind of stream content um, onto, onto the screen. It's meant to use uh, web sockets at first, although we can talk about other, other possibilities of other interconnects. And it's there to you know, connect to some uh, node or wallet endpoint to be able to request invoices or pay invoices or upon stuff getting paid to propagate the pre-image and, and these kind of things. 
what it'll look like in an app like SparkShot is um, you'll tether your browser client to your wallet. So they'll have a socket connection. And then on SparkShot, we could we could show what your Satoshi balance is that you've made available from the wallet. And then as you're clicking on pixels, as you're using the user interface, it can be settling, it can be requesting and settling those microtransactions under the covers where you don't have to handle those bolt 11s or you know copy paste anything or deal with QR codes. It kind of presents a vision where you can create entire games that are driven at their core by, by micropayments. So another, another non-SparkShot application might be like gambling. Gambling is an easy example because everybody's familiar. I'm not a huge fan of gambling, but it's an easy example to explain. If you have a user interface for some sort of like poker or blackjack or there's like lightning roulette right now, you know, the idea that you'd want to click on screen and place a chip to actually settle a lightning transaction from your browser to the to the other end as you know, the trigger for actually counting that chip is placed. That's something MoneySocket could do if if the, the application developers were to include my library and and integrate that. Another slightly different use case might be uh, like streaming video. Typically right now, if we have Netflix or Amazon Prime or HBO or, or whatever else, it's like a subscription fee. And everybody's like, well, um, that kind of sucks. I have to pay if whether I watch it or not. And it's sort of this walled garden thing. Wouldn't it be better if I had the ability to just kind of like pay as you go on this on the content I want to watch? So MoneySocket could be a part of that system where you have a video player software that's tethered to your Bitcoin node that has lightning capabilities. And then that software that you're controlling, uh, if you want to watch like a live stream of sports, for example, that video player could access your wallet and, and pay for content in a way where you don't have to like scan QR codes or anything. You just kind of authorize it. Okay, $10 a month to my video streamer player. As I select content, it'll just buy the content for me to watch. And that could be done in microtransactions, you know, every 10 seconds, for example. The grand vision of MoneySocket is to kind of facilitate a new ecosystem of apps that work on microtransactions underneath. I really like that. Rusty Russell is working on what he calls super invoices or offers, which basically kind of sounds like it might be something very similar to MoneySocket. Are you familiar with his uh, thing there? Uh, yeah, I believe Rusty's uh, drafted that as Bolt 13. Um, I think it's just in draft, like it's not been merged. And it's sort of like it's a replacement for Bolt 11. Um, I think, you know, now that we've had a couple of years with Bolt 11, there's there's some things that people are chafing on in kind of how that was constructed. So I think he's called it, yeah, Super Invoices. And I believe, yeah, he's putting some things about like recurring payments. So if you did have like a monthly charge for Netflix, um, it could just like have your node pay it every month to re-up your subscription. That's baked further down into the stack, I would say. Like if they're going to build that into the nodes, that's fine. I think MoneySocket is different in that it's like primary, like a, a user interface technology in that what it needs from the Lightning Network is very minimal. It just needs the ability to request and pay a Bolt 11, essentially. Maybe there's some reasons to do, you know, some signatures for authentication or that kind of thing. But we don't really need a lot from the, the base protocol other than here, pay this. And then build all the amenities you would need to like build wallets out of that and build apps to connect to those wallets out of that. I would say that, yeah, we need all kinds of different approaches. I wouldn't say uh, money socket is the, the end game. Um, I think in open source, typically you have all kinds of different projects that happen in parallel that are all doing different approaches to kind of the same problem. Talking like uh, Linux distributions, there's all kinds to suit whatever your taste is and window managers and and all these other things. 
over time, these projects all benefit from each other to kind of see what they're doing, to see what resonates with the end users and and you know what makes the most sense over time. And then, yeah, just people have different tastes to some apps might like one approach, one protocol approach might work with an app a certain way, but then other use cases, uh, maybe super invoices is the right application of that. I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm highly in support of Rusty's work there. I'm also highly in support of LNURL, which is another, I guess, kind of similar, but kind of different project that um, is working on extending usability. So yeah, I think we're in this experimental phase where we just got to try all these things. And, and I hope there's even more projects beyond the couple we've mentioned. I feel like that's a very fascinating part of the Lightning Network ecosystem. We have several large companies working on their implementations of Lightning. We have Lightning Labs, we have Blockstream, we have Eclair, and I think the other one in Japan as well there. What I find fascinating is that, you know, we have developers making things like MoneySocket, making things like LNURL to kind of fill in some of the gaps that these companies just haven't gotten around to yet, maybe, or something along those lines. Are you guys big fans of that kind of encouraging everyone, you know, random people on Twitter to just jump in and contribute to Bitcoin, contribute to Lightning Network and, you know, try to fill in these kind of UX gaps and other places where things can be improved. This is a real big thing. Like, you know, this is a decentralized space. There's no leadership here. Uh, so you're trying to do whatever you can as an individual. We've talked to a lot of people over time and you mentioned before about, you know, you, you don't work on the code, but you're, you know, working on a podcast that's helping broadcast so anybody with any ability of whatever they're doing can really help the space out any sort of positive action. Going back to, to Sparkshop, it was an example. Like we wanted to build an application. We had the money to build an application uh, you know, to support ourselves. We didn't have to go down the VC route and then end up in you know, kind of all the embroiled situations you can get in with, with the VCs. Part of the reason for doing Sparkshop was to present uh, a, a real life set of problems. We knew that Sparkshot was going to launch with some issues. We knew about the, the QR code friction ahead of time. So it wasn't a surprise when we launched it, but we needed more applications out there to present these real life problems we've got. Because one of the things that we, we kind of noticed is there's been a lot of uh, work in the Bitcoin space. If you to kind of weigh things up, it was perhaps weighted more towards the wallet side for whatever reason, whether people found it easy to fork existing wallet software and produce that stuff. And it felt like uh, wallets were suddenly getting this burden for uh, sets of trying to solve sets of unknown problems that weren't existing quite out there in the real world. And so we've said this all along when we've had the chance to speak to people and developing Sparkshot, get out there and, and contribute in whatever way you can. Like I would love to see not just competition to Sparkshot, but just more, more products out there um, that utilize uh, Lightning and utilize it maybe in a slightly different way. You know, Sparkshot does it in a particular way, but like the example of like video streaming requires a different solution to, to a set of problems. Uh, and it feels like MoneySocket, we can have this conversation about MoneySocket now because we have like a Sparkshot to, to solve an actual real world problem. But there, it's obviously trying to, we're trying to think about other problems to solve with it, but there's no examples of some of those applications right now. I mean, it would suck if you had a video streaming platform out right now and every 10 seconds you're getting a QR code to pop up and scan to say, do you want to watch 10 more seconds of this video? But we, you know, you've got to kind of like deal with these chicken and egg problems at some point and try and push ahead. Yeah, anybody that wants to jump in, like I fully encourage it. 
it's not a big space. You know, there's not that many developers out there. It does mean that we're quite light on the amount of support that we've got. Like Stack Overflow is great. If you're developing a web app, you go there and there's like a million answers from the past 10 years where you can solve some coding issue you've got. There might not be so much of that, but it is still a space that's quite well connected, uh, really. And you can jump in a Telegram group or something with someone. And when it comes to developing applications, similar to what Sparkshot we try to do there, Pick a small problem and, and go ahead with it. You know, these don't have to be, you know, the idea of world changing applications. Just build something fun uh, and something that's functional. And then you present it there. And, and that gives something for the wallet makers to go and tackle with. You know, why does this wallet feel better solving, you know, the problems of this app than another application? And that's more meat for people to, to kind of circle around because we sat in a world where there's a lot of theoretics, like people talking about these theoretical ideas of like, what if this in the future, what if that in the future? And it's like, well, if it's code and we can build it now, why don't, why don't we just build it now and try it out? The Lightning Network is much different than Bitcoin once you get into like the, the underlying, like Bitcoin has this reputation, which is deserved, that it's very hard to change, that there's this like super rigid review process and like soft forks are hard to pull off and all these other things. So the, the Lightning Network developers, when they sat down and defined all the protocols, they almost overreacted to that by making it super open, super flexible. The TLV messages, which are a thing that came in the last year or so, and uh, other things like, you know, be able to replace Bolt 11s with Bolt 13s. Like they had the foresight that they didn't understand all the problems. Really, now we're getting into the phase where there's just all this open experimentation and it's all allowed and it's all awesome. And Lightning Network will, I think, continue in that way. And in fact, one, one other like really good innovation in the space is just the C Lightning implementation and how they did plugins. And I've written a few uh, C Lightning plugins and it's like really smart and really well thought out. If you have a crazy idea, you can just build it and they've set it up in a way to give you all the tools you need to build it. The barrier to entry of like doing some Lightning innovation is getting lower and lower. And just the community is very encouraging to, to experiment. And I've actually taken inspiration from the C Lightning plugin interface in MoneySocket to kind of make it easy to extend. You get the base amenities of, of money socket, but if you have some particular thing you want to start doing on top of it, you know, to make it easy to define those as additional layers on top of money socket. You don't have to say no to any idea, just like, hey, go build it. Like, here's all the tools you need. If you think that's a cool idea, like uh, build it and show us and we'll be very stoked that when you do that. Are there any developers currently using money socket or are you in talks with anyone to maybe test it out or demo it or anything like that? Yeah, it's very early. So I believe you, you interviewed Pavel with uh, Graph1 uh, previously. We've been working with him um, in his use case for um, keeping like a, a fiat custody where it will convert to Bitcoin lightning upon demand out of their fiat balance. We're heavily considering that use case. So we yeah, are working with, with his setup and then of course Sparkshot. But yeah, no, we're, we're very early along in the process. It's very much under construction. There's a lot of ideas. There's just a lot of effort to bootstrap it as a like kind of a reliable, stable thing at, at the foundation. And you got to kind of get over that hump to really get to the fun stuff. You know, something like, you know, Lightning Network was on testnet for like two years before we went to mainnet. And that was a huge exercise in bootstrapping all these node implementations and test frameworks and, and even figuring out what the hell they were building. Anything complex takes like a year or two. And Money Socket, we're still, you know, I think less than six months since I started. It's probably, you know, three or four months of, of actual development. It's early and yeah, it'll be a, an exercise to finish it and then also show demos that are then compelling enough to other developers where they're like, hey, that's a cool tech. I should build an app for that tech. 
And then, yeah, also getting you know, wallet support and all that is, is another exercise. It's an open source project. So if anybody's compelled by this set of ideas, this is a thing you can get in uh, relatively early if you want to contribute. Um, we're not funded like Sparkshot. You know, we haven't gone any, any sort of VC route with this. It's a labor of love right now, but I think it's a, it's a very good way to spend time at this point in the market. So the easiest way for any developer to jump in would just be just, just go straight to, to GitHub and just start doing their thing? There's a prototype, like there's implementation in JavaScript and in Python. So there's a, like compatible implementations in two languages. I'm kind of writing and rewriting these things at a fairly rapid pace. So it's maybe a little too volatile right now for somebody to build a serious app. Like it's it, uh, if somebody's getting involved now, they're going to have to help me fight through a few bugs and add features on the fly to uh, support whatever they're doing. Probably the best way to, to get started and get going would be to just uh, hop in Telegram and ask questions. And if you need help, and I put some videos up on YouTube. If you go to our website, socket.money, there's a link to a playlist. I've kind of been brain dumping every week or two on what I'm working on. So if, if anybody's interested, that can get them up to speed on the wavelength. But yeah, it's not quite ready for actual serious use at this point in time, but it will be hopefully in coming months. Most definitely. Going back to Pavel, he has been talking about some of these ideas for applications that he wants to build. We've always tried to push this idea of like you know weekend projects. You know, if you get if people get the chance, I mean, especially people with day jobs, come up with some some weekend project idea, and it might be just something worth doing on the side, and that is completely valuable to to help in develop this stuff. If someone wants to tap in there and and, and do that, so definitely things that encourage like. You don't need to ask in this space. You can just do. But, you know, we certainly want to be welcoming that if somebody's got an idea to jump into, say, the Telegram and start talking about these ideas. And that's going to help develop the protocol overall. And it's going to give us more meat to play around with. But as long as, as JD said, like, as long as you're prepared, like, this is not to go out there and get some VC money and build a launchable application right now, because things might completely change in the next uh, year or so. But as a weekend project, it's, it's an ideal space. What do you guys see as being the future of uh, SparkShot? Well, I definitely want to get SparkShot working with MoneySocket and then seeing how that pans out. But it's it's kind of, we've got a lot of ideas that we could develop around SparkShot. There's actually pieces of code that we've not really exposed to the application yet because we wanted to launch in a sort of, of a minimal state to you know just get the function of artists being able to upload artwork and users being able to reveal. We've got ideas that we could build on top of that, but it's really just to present a functional application on Lightning and to see how people sort of reflect on it and maybe, you know, have different ideas. We've had a lot of people say, wouldn't it be cool if it did this? And it almost sounds like what they describe as a different application. So it's like, cool, go make that application because we, you know, we want to see that as well. It's all fully, you know, running right now. There's still some code to get the mobile interface improved, which I need to work on. But as, in terms of an application right now, it's all set in, in the core. We, we're definitely open to anybody coming up with ideas for improvements to jump in the Telegram there and, and throw your ideas out at us. We've had a, a lot of really good ideas put forward and, and you know, some of those we've had the chance to incorporate. But uh, in terms of, of where we're at with Lightning, it's, another, it's a test of where Lightning is at right now. You know, are, are people using it often and what things are they using it on? Lightning is, in truth, very, very early right now. People aren't using this. It's not prime time yet. It might take more applications to make it prime time. Whether that's just a slow emergence of something, like once there's a suite of applications that makes it valuable for people to step in the space and SparkShot can play a role in being part of that suite. Or someone's going to come with a Flappy Birds or you know something that's just going to ignite the space and bring new Bitcoiners in that are going to come into Bitcoin through Lightning first. 
and not through Bitcoin because of Bitcoin, but because this this hot application is cool and they're enjoying it and they're using it. And it just so happens that they are using uh, Bitcoin to, to do that. It feels like we're very early now. Who knows what the timeline looks like? Could be a year, could be two years, could be five years. It doesn't seem you know, deeply worthwhile in us going crazy with developing and deeply developing SparkShot to do a whole lot more. We were still seeing emergent behavior on SparkShot. There's still a lot of legs in, in there where we're surprised the developers. We've been working on SparkShot for, what, nearly two years? And seeing people use it is still surprising us and you know, showing us different ways that people use it we didn't think of before. Not breaking it, they're just making you know, new interesting statements and new interesting things like the artwork and the combination of how the users are revealing the pixels. It's kind of is there for people to use. If you're an artist and you want to upload some artwork, it's there. And if you're using, you want to play around and throw a couple of sats at something to see what happens when you spend something on Lightning, it's there for you as well. One observation of the overall Lightning ecosystem is like it's still it's still very new. There's a lot of Bitcoiners that are on board with Lightning. They like Lightning. They know a bit about it. They're happy that it exists, but they're still wrapping their head around all the other difficult stuff in Bitcoin in like how to secure their coins, how to buy coins, how to cope with all this uh, noise and, and politics and worldviews that uh, get blasted at you once you get into Bitcoin. It is still a lot to ask for somebody to get a Lightning wallet and have it in a way such that they're using it every day. There just really isn't a, a user base for that kind of thing right now. Hopefully that will get better in time and um, there'll be other apps like, like SparkShot where it's easier to explain SparkShot because they've already seen a number of apps that are kind of like it and maybe they're, they're more artist oriented. So SparkShot is more appealing to them. The overall problems in the Lightning space, you know, the barriers aren't necessarily more code and more features on SparkShot. It's really getting the ecosystem up to speed into better health. When I look at like what's a good way for me to spend time, I think it is very much on on the money socket side of things because that's going to help the whole ecosystem and it's going to get people thinking more about micropayments if there's some cool demos and apps um, that we can show off in that space. And hopefully, yeah, inspire more companies to uh, to do something that's maybe similar to SparkShot. And if they can bring a bunch of users to Bitcoin, then maybe they can slide over to SparkShot if they think they might like it. There's a combination there, going back to what you're saying before about the like the graph one thing. If you've got an end-to-end solution there where somebody goes in with $10 in their account and then they buy something from SparkShot, they don't talk about Bitcoin and they don't look at Bitcoin. They don't think about Bitcoin at all. And that's where we could, that's, you know, part of the process of, of MoneySocket being a potential solution there is it brings people into Bitcoin where they don't even know they're using Bitcoin. They're using whatever their local currency is and they're having transactions based on that. And they're just seeing the results. They're going into this because they, they like to do this interaction, you know, reveal artwork or if it's in a video game, play a video game, whatever. They don't think about Bitcoin at all. Bitcoin is working for us as a piece of technology. It's settling a transaction. It's providing value to the people providing the services. It's not a statement by some user where they're, they're trying to like project that they're using Bitcoin for whatever reason. That's not their interest. That's a potential for us. Obviously, if you want to use Bitcoin as a statement, you, you can do. And that's the great thing about it. Tying that back to some of my earlier statements around, you know, stable coins and, and RGB, like MoneySocket, we're using a slightly different approach to, to current approaches in that we have this asynchronous socket that's connected and it's low at cost to go send a, a, an update message. So in the case of like a, a custodian like Graph who might have a fiat balance, we can advertise that wallet as the fiat balance. Like if it's $100 on MoneySocket that will say it's $100 here's what the Satoshi exchange of that is. And then every time the, the price changes, it can provide an update. 
such that when that person, that user is walking around with their wallet, it says, hey, you got $10. And then when you want to buy something, it'll be like, oh, but this will be a dollar. And then in the background, it'll settle in Satoshis over the Lightning Network and they won't know that they're using Bitcoin necessarily. That to me is more compelling for onboarding people that, you know, they know how PayPal works, but the, you know, Bitcoin and Lightning, oh, that's too complicated. But I can, you know, send a bank transfer to my PayPal account and all of a sudden I'm paying my friends and I'm buying e-commerce stuff. I think getting closer to that with Lightning as the facilitator of the transaction, I think that's a very noble uh, short to medium term goal that I want to really demonstrate with stuff like Money Socket and hopefully get the, the headspace of all of Bitcoin more into that presenting like actually usable user interfaces that your your grandparents could use. In that sense, you know, this, this is definitely a theme that I've had since I basically started the show of is it a good thing essentially for users to onboard directly onto the Lightning Network, kind of bypassing maybe some of the ideological Bitcoin onboarding that you kind of alluded to there that they're getting blasted on Twitter about or et cetera. Do you see this as being a positive thing, a negative thing, or a kind of neutral thing as just a thing that's happening? Do you see this as a good thing or a bad thing? Like Dean, I wouldn't describe myself as a Bitcoin maximalist. I think that's like, it's sort of a rhetorical kind of antagonistic type framing to to go say that, you know, Bitcoin's the only currency you'll ever need. Not a perfect comparison, but something like the the metric system. I don't know if you're in the United States, but um, in Canada here, we have the metric system. It converted over at some point. Talking to my grandparents, they'd still talk in miles. They'd still talk in inches and, and, and whatever else. As you get raised with like these certain mental frameworks, um, it's really hard to go convert to a different unit. I'm skeptical that the mainstream user is ever going to want to care about managing their life in Satoshis. We're kind of like weird internet people and technically minded. So like we can, we can handle that. We can kind of adjust to Satoshis, but yeah, the volatility is a problem and I don't see that going away with, you know, all these like kind of pump memes and all that. I think that's just going to lead to an eventual crash again and we'll get a bunch more bad press and all that. I think the more you can abstract that away and just let people contemplate money in the way that they're already used to contemplating money, I think is going to be overall massively bullish for Bitcoin. The other like basic kind of reasoning thing is like if Bitcoin crashes, if we go through like another like 85, 90% crash, if there's a bunch of users that are just spending US dollars, but on Bitcoin, that's actually like, I don't know, like 10x more demand at the bottom of the market than there is at the top of the market, right? Because there's there's more Bitcoin demanded to be able to go settle that 100 US dollar transaction. That will create sort of that, that price smoothing effect in my my armchair economist opinion anyway. The more people that are using it, the more like instantaneous demand. I think that's just overall better. If I were to talk about uh, what might be the future of humanity, I think, you know, just out of that, you know, fiat currencies will will slowly fade away and, and die one by one. And then everybody will be on U.S. dollars and then U.S. dollars will be the last to go. And then maybe we'll have Bitcoin. But the timeline I'd put on that is, I don't know, uh, 50 years, 100 years, an entire generation of, of people, I think needs to go by to, to really make that a go. I'm not ideologically committed to Bitcoin, but right now it's the only game in town. It's obvious that the, you know, with the Lightning Network and, and other innovations, it's got a huge lead technology-wise and it's, it's increasing as time goes on. So I'm very pro-Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin is just a technology. It's just a solution to a problem. It's nice to get behind it and rally it. And that certainly helped Bitcoin move forward and gain more attractions of people. And that goes back to my point before about hype. Hype can at least capture attention, but you can't, you can't get drunk on it. When it comes to, to Bitcoin as being this sort of flag waving thing, it's just technology. It's just, it's just software. It's complicated because it has the token associated with it has this coin the coin and the tech both call the same name which is kind of problematic as well but when it comes to like the adoption of email uh you know i, I fully remember the world prior to email i remember the adoption of email i always looked at my, my parents like when did they get an email address how did they get an email address and it was things like hotmail that gave them an email address now if we were rallying around email in the early days and saying you know how cool it was and we're all like you know waving smtp or you know whatever whatever kind of like way we wanted to describe how how great it was you could see a lot of people hating on hotmail because it took away that you know you're not hosting your own server you're not doing this you're not doing that but it allowed that mass mass adoption of of email for people but it still had to abide by the fundamental protocols of of email so it wasn't something like PayPal, which came along and really filled in a gap of, of commerce on the internet, but did so in such a way that it developed its own ecosystem. And then, you know, it was able to massively profitize over that and normalize it to, to the space. Now, people don't have problems using PayPal because it's very familiar with them. But in doing so that you're, you know, you're supporting a very centralized technology base where we've seen over the past couple of years, PayPal shutting down people saying you're not allowed payments anymore. You know, with, with something like email, you could get locked out of your Hotmail account for whatever reason, but that's not going to stop you from running your own email server should you want to and still be part of the email system. Uh, and so that's one of the things like I don't really care about Bitcoin in terms of a flag waving thing. And it might not be the end solution for, for Bitcoin and people might not know they're using Bitcoin if it comes to mass adoption. But I'd like to see the world operate around something where we can use Bitcoin because it has a lot of great features, because it can cut out, you know, these high level fees of, of using like credit cards and stuff like that for payment transactions, which one can be blocked and two take massive amounts of, uh, you know, sort of middlemen cuts out of that process. I guess my biggest response is I'm very much a Bitcoiner. I'm very much see it as being a very self-empowering thing. Maybe that's just adding a lot of illogical stuff on top. Do you guys see Bitcoin significantly changing the world stage? Very often my guests don't like to make predictions, but I like to ask anyway. Do you see the, the future of Bitcoin changing the face of our planet and the face of humanity going forward? Like the internet itself, it had massive uh, effects on society and how we kind of see our place in it and, and how you know, media is disseminated and, and all these other things. What I hope for, um, and this is sort of my, my political perspective, uh, like I hope it's gradual. I don't, I don't want like citadels going to war with other citadels over, over uh, mining energy or something like that. Okay, I want uh, it to be like this sort of gradual fun, uh, interesting exploration of, of technology, just getting better over time. And then like, we don't, we don't have to end governments just if governments you become less relevant over time, they just kind of fade away. Like the post office that to me is the more optimistic. If things go into revolution too fast, you get like dictators like Napoleon and, and Stalin and, and all that. Those are the people that come to power. That's, that's the, that's a failure mode. I don't want that. I want people to just get slowly bored of government and start managing their affairs locally. 
maybe lightning's a, a good way. However, Linux itself had a, like a, a, a strong ideological center to it. They're going to destroy Microsoft. They're going to you know, sort of end these quote unquote software hoarders that uh, were selling proprietary software. In the long run, that just built Google. That didn't necessarily end Microsoft. We got Amazon and Google out of that because they had free good software to use. I think that might ultimately, you know, there's at least the risk of that being the outcome. You, you could argue it for a dystopia and you could argue it for a, a utopia. My mind's not settled that it's going to be one way or the other. I think going forward, if it's not Bitcoin, it's going to be something like Bitcoin. Like the internet and the web was built with the idea right from almost the get-go that there was going to be some sort of money exchange happen over there, but it, it, there was no solution for that. And we've seen, we, we've got things like PayPal and stuff. People are conducting transactions on the internet all the time now. And, and like we've adopted the internet, which is, which is a, a humanity-changing uh, system. It feels weird to, to say you start up a new PC right now that has no internet connection. That PC feels like a, a dumb machine. It's, it's kind of crazy. It just doesn't feel like a complete uh, machine to be using because it lacks the, that internet connection. Just like the internet, it's give us good and it's give us bad. And I think whatever solution comes along uh, that, that fills that role of like Bitcoin, it's going to come with good and it's going to come with bad. I just hope that it's, it's more good than it is bad. Uh, and I think that's the way that we work as a species. You know, we move forward. We don't take perfect solutions. There is no utopia that we can find because we will always corrupt utopia one way or another. Uh, we'll always be driven by different reasons, uh, want different things because we, we're all different people, part of different groups. I just hope what, whatever solution does come about, it enables and liberates people across the globe. We've got a lot of countries that are, you know, under regimes where they're locked down behind borders and behind governments. And it's difficult to help those people because we're, you know, we're, we're limited by our physical distance and physical space. When you hear stories about people, say, you know, in Venezuela using Bitcoin, and you know that the people can use Bitcoin in places like Venezuela, and they're being backed by the miners and the nodes that are running around the world, it feels like you're doing something that's for the good of, of, of everyone. I mean, sure, we're going to get some bad things happen in Bitcoin, and it's going to give the freedom for bad things to happen with Bitcoin, you know, bad transactions, funding of bad things. You know, I heard stories like ISIS have got a Bitcoin address and they've had funding delivered through that. But we've got to hope that whatever solutions come forward, the good will override the bad. And that'll be, you know, valuable enough for us to, to say it was worth the effort. Previously, you were you were talking about Hotmail as being this kind of possible compromise of, quote unquote, Internet ideals or ideology or something that might have existed at that time. I remember in the 90s, I was using GeoCities. I was very proud of my GeoCities website, and it really helped to foster like an interest in the internet and in technology, creating things on the internet, even if it was a hosted website thing that was totally controlled by somebody else. I would almost draw the analogy that if Bitcoin was around back then, and if Hotmail or GeoCities was a Bitcoin company, that they would be releasing a custodial wallet or something like that. You know, they'd be a Coinbase or what have you. Do you see custodial lightning wallets that might be coming out as being a negative thing or are they more of a possible positive thing in the sense that when I was a kid jumping on GeoCities, 
it wasn't maybe the perfect, according to some ideology that said, I need to, you know, self-host everything in order to have some purity on some level, or was the fact that it triggered me to learn more and to go deeper, become more interested in this technology and what have you, that, you know, today I self-host you know, more than one website, whatever. What are your guys' thoughts here? That's kind of the thing. We, we work on this kind of like push and pull mentality. We don't have a perfect plan in place. We don't all agree upon something and set off down that route. We we all go out there and take any line that we, we, we potentially can, what feels comfortable. So some people, they don't feel comfortable at all of using a custodial wallet. You know, it's the, it's the opposite reason for why they're interested in Bitcoin. But for other people, there's just a huge wall to get over. And that's kind of one of the things of like people... Like they've heard about Bitcoin, they're interested, they want to get in, and then you sit them down for an hour, take them through how to set up a wallet, what is a hardware wallet, it's a software wallet, it's a paper wallet, and then you can see their eyes glaze over and think, oh my, I'm not ready for this. This is kind of crazy. And you're thinking, well, should we lose that person right now because they're not feeling comfortable? And they walk away, or should we say, you know what, just throw $10 on a custodial wallet, spend you know, a bit of Bitcoin. And that's one of the great things about Lightning is you can spend very low level transactions where your loss is a very minimal loss, but still kind of go in there and say, look, if you want to get in Bitcoin, don't throw $50,000 into a custodial wallet. And there's a lot of people right now are probably still with, with huge amounts of Bitcoin on, on a Coinbase wallet that they bought in 2017 that they're hating on. There's obviously bad in that, but if it pushes us down that line of adoption and in there are pathways, like we have to abide by the protocols, we have to abide. A Bitcoin transaction is a Bitcoin transaction, you know, those kind of things. Then the pathway could be for the ultimate good. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be following that sort of Puritan level of the only way to get into email is you launch your own server, set up your own server, launch your own email server and go through all these you know, problems with doing that. It's never going to be. It's not how we're going to adopt it as a, as a species. So we can't go down that route. We can, we can be mindful of it, but we, we're just not going to go down that route. To extend that, even if, if uh, custodial wallets are like, you know, become kind of the de facto standard like email, there's still the possibility you can always host your own. So even if your customers all have custodial wallets, you can still be like a merchant. You can have your vending machine business or just, you know, set up your own e-commerce website without relying on any of those central providers, just because you do have those uh, like censorship resistant rails available to you. We're in a lot different world than we were back in the, in the days of Hotmail in that like even when there is custodial stuff, like a lot of stuff is still on GitHub, like Blue Wallet is custodial and they've been criticized, but all their, all their source code is there. If somebody has a problem with Blue Wallet, you know, a new, a new company could start up and maybe that is, is even advisable today. If a new wallet company is starting and they want to be custodial, they'll probably just start with like Blue Wallet software and go from there. The, the protocols evolve in open source in the same way as like if you're, if you're a company and you want to host your own email server, that's still an option to you today, even though Hotmail exists. And uh, yeah, the SendMail program still works as far as I know. If you have application backend spam out, you can just use SendMail and it'll send it to your Gmail and all that. So I think all the, all the desirable properties uh, of Lightning will still largely exist, even if we do have kind of the worst case scenario for everybody having custodial wallets. I think we're kind of reaching the uh, towards the end of the show here. Do you guys have any final thoughts on Money Socket, uh, SparkShot, or anything along those lines? First of all, if you've not used SparkShot, I would I'd highly recommend jumping in and try it out. There's a lot of artwork already uploaded in different states of reveal. So there's things you can pick a new piece that's not been touched before and, and go in there and add whatever you want to it, draw a 
draw whatever you want. <laughs> you know, a smiley face, uh, some symbol of something or other, add a message, test it out and just see how it feels as well. Like, you know, we're really interested in, in, in hearing about how, how the steps feel to a user, especially, you know, the QR code or which wallet you're using. Are you using a desktop wallet? Are you using a, a mobile wallet? Uh, those are things that where we do need to solve. Solving those problems is going to be for the greater good of, of, uh, of everyone. And also, if you're an artist and want to give it a shot, you don't need to even have a Bitcoin wallet to um, or Lightning uh, to actually be an artist and upload. It can be your first foray into getting some Bitcoin, especially if you're an artist that have got, that's got a following. We've got that difficult nature of some artists are out there, but they don't have a Bitcoin following group. So they upload an image, but they have no users to go in there and buy their image that already know they're, they're a cool artist. So there is a bit of a problem there right now, but it's, it's all set up so that you can go to the website, upload a piece of artwork, and we generate a wallet for you on the Sparkshop website itself. So everything can be done. It's all cryptographically signed and you've got signing rights to the artwork. And then once the payout comes around, you can set up a Lightning wallet then only at the point where you need it because you've got some Lightning to be owed to you. Also, another thing, if if you're using SparkShot and you want to try it out, uh, please also, if you go to our Twitter account, there's a link into our Telegram group. We also have a Discord group if you're on that platform. We also echo out the each message that gets purchased so that we, we render the pixels that have been purchased in context and then the message and that gets echoed to the, the Telegram app. So it's actually it's kind of a, a fun plus to the app is like just monitoring that that chat room because sometimes people send messages back and forth via SparkShot. And it's fun to watch because you get kind of this weird art always showing up in your Telegram feed and uh and that makes it a little bit more fun and you know follow what's going on. Even if you're not actively using it, it's sort of a passive way to enjoy SparkShot. Yeah, one of the things as well that we do at the end of a piece of artwork. So last week, we got a new piece of artwork finished. So if you check our Twitter account, you'll see a video of it there. Uh, we render every single purchase in a sequence that results in a video. So you get to see what you contributed to and how the artwork was, was revealed. And, this, and that's what we're saying about this emergent behavior. We're seeing now that users are figuring out that if they buy reveals in a set order, then they can actually create an animation. And so we're seeing these really cool like animations start to fall in there. And that's one of the things when you look at the individual reveals in time, you might see this flurry of, of messages go through the telegram as these reveals happen. And it's somebody kind of like doing these small like pixel animations and stuff. So that's really neat to see because you, you're anticipating that what it's going to look like when the, the artwork is complete and the video is rendered. And that's kind of a motivation to go and get the artwork finished so we can see it. Do you want to let the listeners know how they can find SparkShots and uh, MoneySocket and you guys on Twitter and everything else? Yeah, SparkShot is SparkShot underscore IO on Twitter. Uh, my personal Twitter account is JD2983. And then also we have MoneySocket for the MoneySocket project. Yeah, my Twitter handle is Roskeld, that's R-O-S-K-E-L-L-D. The SparkShot has two uh, Telegram groups, but if you jump in the main one, we can send you the link to the other one. So we, we kept the uh, separate, uh, the, the feed of the purchases to be a separate Telegram group, just so it doesn't spam the, the main chat. Well, perfect. I really appreciate you guys joining me on the Lightning Junkies podcast. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Boom. That was the 39th episode of the Lightning Junkies podcast. Well, I really hoped you enjoyed that episode. I think I learned quite a bit and I'm definitely agreeing with these guys about NFTs. And I think I agree about the future of microtransactions on the Lightning Network as well. 
I definitely don't think that they're going to be on there forever. So we definitely need other layers on top to continue to scale for these different use cases on top of Lightning and on top of Bitcoin itself. Beyond that, I really hope you learned something. I really hope you took something away from this podcast. If you did happen to take anything away from this podcast, please visit lightningjunkies.net forward slash support. And if you hated the podcast, please let me know by visiting twitter.com forward slash lnjunkies. Tell me as much information as possible so we can improve the show and make it more valuable for you and all of our other listeners. And to continue to preach the gospel of Bitcoin and the Lightning Network to all the adherents that would dare listen to the majesty of our creation. Okay, enough of that. I think I'm going to end it here. I really appreciate each and every one of you. I really mean that. I, I don't think I've ever really said that on this show, which I wish I had before. I think too often I would just get into a depression and try to force myself through these intros and outros. I genuinely appreciate each and every person that's listening, especially all the way to the end here. You know, you're you're a goddamn trooper. So thank you. And I hope you continue to listen and I hope to, to continue to give you reasons to want to support the show, to want to support uh, me, Chaz, and Kat, and everything that we do. For now, I lovingly will see you on the Lightning Network. Network.